0: Let's come to Daniel chapter 1, if you're going to stay with us for this lesson. Daniel 1. Daniel chapter 1, and we've reached down to verse number 17. I'm going to give you guys the same announcement. Many of you already heard this Thursday night, but this week I I got new lenses for my glasses. So it's the first time I've ever had progressive lenses of this nature and it's taking a little getting used to. I'm still not completely used to it. It's very nice. I can see the words in my Bible again, uh, which is, that's a plus, right? That helps. Um, I don't have to keep taking my glasses off. If you know what progressives are, if I want to see far in the back, Maurice, if I want to see you, I look this way. And then if I want to see Cabello here, I, I hold my head up a little bit more. And then if I want to see my Bible, I look through the bottom. But if I happen to look through the sides, whoa, everything goes all wishy-washy. So as I move my head side to side, the room just kind of does this. i got to get used to that. So if you see me up here this morning just moving my head like this, I'm not grooving. right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting my groove on. I'm not trying to dance. I'm just trying to find the sweet spot <laughs> and, and how to see everybody clearly. So, All right, Daniel chapter 1. And <clears throat> just to remind you what we're looking at, Daniel in this chapter as a young man late teens, possibly early 20s, probably late teens, uh, he has taken a tremendous stand. And the one thought that I think we ought to take from that is is our lives should be of God and not of the world. And that that preposition right there, of, you understand what the, the significance of that? To be of the world means you've allowed them to shape you and to mold you, your thinking, your actions, your emotions. And it's, guys, it's a subtle thing as we move around in the world because Jesus said we are in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. It's very easy for the world to kind of rub off on us. And we, we get bombarded with it, right? We have to work in it, but then we come home and turn the TV on and it's there. We got the radio and it's there. It's just all around us all the time. Daniel, this is not easy for him to take such a stand, But that's a great lesson for us. Great example we can learn from this teenager. Take this stand. Now, based on that, we get into verse number 17. As for these four children, now, I I like how the Bible uses that word, children. They're late teens, but they're still considered children. Uh, Solomon was 40 years old, and at the age of 40, he said, Lord, uh, bless me this and this. He's a long prayer, but he said, for I am young and tender, and I thought, man, he's just getting started. I like that. Some of you, you know, you're not old enough yet to appreciate that. When, you, you, when you've already crossed over that hill of 40 and you read in the Bible that that's not old, you're just still young. Yeah, amen. Amen. That's good. That's worth an amen right there. <laughs> Don't worry. Some of you, you'll amen when you get there. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll get there. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So, Verse 17 speaks to education. And I want you to notice the word all. He gave, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. Not just biblical learning, spiritual learning, but by, by all means we need that, right? Most people never carry on to the end of the verse in their own lives. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now you're getting into something where God has to reveal things to you. We need that type of education every day, yes? Every day we need God revealing something else to us. I know that Daniel's situation is unique. Visions and dreams, that's not something all of us will get deep learning in. God's not going to reveal all of that stuff through us or to us. But nevertheless, Daniel had a connection with God, and he grew that. He cultivated that. But notice that at the first part, God gave them knowledge and skill. Knowledge is the theory, and then skill would be the practical. Right? Now, you University students and those of you that have gone through that, you're very well familiar with, with those two things. Knowledge is just the facts of the matter. This is how it is. And then skill, how do I apply that? So this gives me an opportunity to say this once again, I, and I think it's good to remind you of these types of things. The Bible is not against education. Right? The Bible is not against science, if I can just push it into that uh, scope for a minute. God and science get along. And, and I say, let me qualify that, the God of the Bible and real science, right? true science. The Bible talks about a science that is falsely so called. And I've already touched on that in a previous lesson, so I don't want to dig back into it. But I think it's good, especially in a university town, to make that clear because sometimes people think that God and science are, are against each other. Now, if you really want a good book on this, because you know I, I am not the one to give you all the scientific facts, if you want to read up, John Lennox has written some outstanding books, and one of his is called Has Science Buried God? It's called God's Undertaker has science buried god and it's one of the best books i've read on the topic and just to give you a summary of what he points out in that book one way that you know there is an intelligence right we would call it god we would call him god that intelligence that created the universe is because and the big words here rational intelligibility of the universe now he's a mathematician he's a professor at oxford so he can use those big words and to him they sound like small words but to me that's that's big words rational intelligibility which means you can study the universe and make sense of it the universe makes sense there are laws of nature there's law of gravity there's the law of thermodynamics there there is order instead of chaos so when when we do math when we do scientific experiments we know that this plus this will come to this. And, and we can expect a certain outcome. Well, if there was no intelligence that created everything, then it would just be random things happening. And we would never know, is this about to change? Why does this work? It just works because it just accidentally worked. The fact that we can do science is evidence that there is a God, that there's someone out there bigger than just the laws of nature. Someone had to intelligently put those laws together because they work perfectly. So Lennox, if you want to read more into that, he, he, he points out several other things. You know, the first time we read about science in the Bible, not the word, but the practice thereof, is in Genesis chapter 2. Right? In Genesis 1, you have the creation and the story and how it happened, which by the way, the story of creation fits perfect with what we can observe in nature. It does. It talks about a tree bringing forth fruit after its kind. Yalabura, go in the field. That's what you see, right? A tree, a a plant, it brings forth fruit after its kind. The beast, the the people, we bring forth fruit after our kind. So the scientific statements that are mentioned in chapter 1 are consistent with what we can observe in our universe and and within uh, our world. But then in chapter 2, God commanded Adam to tend the garden, right? But then one of the other jobs he gave him, he brought the animals near and he said, name them, right? That's the scientific practice of taxonomy. When you name, when you classify various things. So right there in Genesis 2, from the beginning, God's not against science. He's commanding us to do it. So God and the Bible, or let's say the Bible and science, I believe, work perfectly together. If you ever hear me speaking contrary to education. It's not the fact that you can learn something at university. Please, God will give you, if you pray for it, sorry, and work hard at it, He'll give you the learning and the skill, right? He'll give you the knowledge. That's not a bad thing. My my concern with the educational system is not the material that you learn that you pay for. It's when they step into the moral realm, and, and when they try to make statements about the spiritual realm that's outside of the scope of their of their uh, job if I can say it like that and that's what makes me nervous when you step onto a university campus and there's a social agenda there's a political or a moral agenda if I'm there to learn physics and chemistry and engineering etc accounting mathematics please by all means it's a good endeavor my dad when I was a teenager he said, son, the w- don't, don't waste your time or your money thinking about college. In America, college and university is the same thing in our minds. We don't differentiate. He said, don't, don't waste time going to college. That's just a, a bunch of money-hungry people that, they're, you know, they just mess with your head, and they're not going to give you anything anyway. They're not going to teach you anything. You learn more out here on the farm in a week than you would at college in a month. He said, just look at my life. I'm getting along just fine. I never went to college. Well, as a, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old, I really don't know what it means to get along well in life. Now that I'm a little older and I look back, my dad was scrounging to get enough food on the table. And I I think that university education might have helped a little bit or a lot. So after I graduated high school, I still had that mentality of, I don't need college. Now, I was a 10-pin bowler. That was my sport when I was growing I did other sports, but that was the one I focused on. I won a scholarship in a tournament. So after I graduated, I'm now allowed to use that scholarship. Now, it wasn't a massive one, but it was nonetheless money I could use towards any class, anything to do with college or university. So I went down to the local community college, which is a two-year college, and I signed up for some classes. I had enough money to get three classes. History class. I love history speech class and a bowling class. (laughs) After two weeks of history, man, that was boring. I I, I love history, but wow, that was another level of boring. So I dropped that. My speech class, I went to one class, and I'm sitting around looking in this room. Now this is, what, I don't know, 85 years ago when I was (laughs) young. I'm looking around, and there's people with, you know, guys with pink mohawks, and I mean, it was... You know, some some girl that kind of resembled the cookie monster. She had blue hair. It was, it was a different... Those of you that know Sesame Street, it was a weird experience. And the teacher said, in this class, you'll have to give, I think, three or four speeches in front of the class every year that you're in speech. And I said, that's enough for me. I'll never speak in front of people. <laughs> and the Bible says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> so he's up there thinking, yeah, okay. So I quit speech, I quit history, I kept on with the bowling class, because it was a free, you know, day of bowling every week, but that got boring as well, because everybody else in, in the class is doing this business, <laughs> and I thought, forget that, I'm not, I'm not sticking around, so that was it, I, I went to college for about a month, now, eventually, I got saved, right, just a couple years after that, I got saved, I did go to Bible school, Bible college, I graduated, I have a master's degree, so I am not against education, but I must admit, I I wish I would have had a different approach to that when I was a younger man. So that's, that's my little advertisement, okay? Get an education, even if it's a secular one. Even if you think, well, God might want me to go into the ministry, God might want me on the mission field, get an education. You go back and study history, the men that God used in these foreign lands often had medical degrees or engineering degrees or various things that would make an impact on those people in a secular way, and God used that to reach them in a spiritual way. So by all means, you know we have a a missionary couple out of our church that's in a closed country, and he came to me while he was in university, and he said, Pastor, I'm pretty sure God wants me in the ministry. I said, Me too. He said, So I'm just going to quit my engineering uh, degree. I'm just going to stop now and just focus on the ministry. I said, "Don't do that. Don't do that. Get your degree. Get your degree. Because you don't. You just don't know. Ten years, twenty years down the road, how that might come in handy. And you know, God has used that where He's at. That that degree itself has opened a few doors. His dad. His dad came and when he heard about his son going into the ministry, his dad drove all the way up from the coast just to have a meeting with me. He sat me down. He said, hey, hey, buddy, hey, what are you telling my boy? I mean, he was upset because he thought, the way he heard the story, I told his son to quit school and just go preach. And his mom wouldn't even come out to meet me, wouldn't shake my hand say hello, nothing. She was so upset. I said, please let me explain. I told him to stay in school and finish. And the dad just sat back and went, oh, is it? I said, Yes. He said, well, well, that's not so bad. I said, right. I said, I, I think he should finish. I think he should do, work hard at it and get a degree, and then maybe God can use that too. And we ended up good friends, and, and they've been a real blessing ever since. So please, I, if I ever say something that sounds a bit dodgy, or like, like I think education is dodgy, it's just that when they overstep their bounds, that's, that's the time where I start to raise an eyebrow. I think you've heard me say it, those of you that have been around Education without salvation is damnation. Education without salvation is damnation. Because it, it, it throws you right into Romans chapter 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Right? Because people tend to lean on their education and say, Well, I have a degree, therefore I don't need something as, as plain and straightforward as the Bible telling me how to go about life. I have a degree. I can figure out my own life. And, and Daniel, as much learning and skill and wisdom as he had, he still knew, okay, I might know mathematics and I might know grammar and language, but there are some things that my education, my secular education cannot help me with. It won't help me walk with God, right? You might have the knowledge, but he that fears God is going to know what to do with that knowledge. It, it takes you much deeper. So let's keep moving here. In verse number 18, it says, Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, that'll be after the three-year program, uh, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them. They're having a chat with the president. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. So just that little conversation, they were so impressive. Now, just from what we've already read, I do not think Daniel went in and started kissing up to Nebuchadnezzar, telling him what he wanted to hear. From what we know of Daniel, as a teenager, he's still going to stand his ground, even in the face of the king. And that impressed the king. In verse 20, In all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm can we try try to put that into some context now the magicians and astrologers for nebuchadnezzar he leaned on them for spiritual things nebuchadnezzar had men all around him for secular things right engineering Uh, chemistry, even at a low level back then, but those type of things. He had men for that. But of all the men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego impressed him 10 times more than any of those other guys. So imagine taking all the PhDs in the country, all of them, and then getting four teenagers who know their Bible and work hard at university and stand there before the king and all these PhDs, 40, 50-year-olds, and the king says, I like those teenagers. <laughs> those guys got some gumption, man. If, if I need somebody to tell me the truth, if I need somebody to work hard, if I need somebody to apply what we've taught them in our university in the right way, I can trust these guys to do it. These astrologers and these magicians, they're just going to keep telling me what I want to hear, but not Daniel. Now, l- lest you think I stretch that, just let your eyes come down to chapter 2. You remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He forgets the dream. So he calls his leadership, if you will, these magicians and astrologers, and tries to get them to tell him what's going on. Uh, Verse number 5, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. So he says, you guys not only have to interpret it, you have to tell me what the dream was. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time. So you're stalling because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. Now watch this. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. So he says, you guys are just going to say something that fits with what's going on in the world around us. They read the newspaper. They looked at the headlines you know, on their, on their Yahoo feed. And they, they're just going to tell the king something that fits that. And the king said, I know you guys, you're liars and you're corrupt. They're politicians. (laughs) They are. (laughs) But not Daniel. Daniel and his friends didn't have that political approach to things. They're just going to step in and say, King, this is what makes sense. This is what's right. They had enough character and backbone to stand for the truth, even if it meant telling the king something he may not want to hear. And, and we find Daniel doing that later in his life. Uh, hold your place here in Daniel and come to Ecclesiastes. Come back a little bit in your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So these young men, they were ten times better. You might have already made the connection. Daniel said, prove us for ten days, right? Let us have the pulse and the water for ten days and see if we don't come out better it's as if God is blessing them in accordance with can I say how they endured that trial or that temptation they took it on for 10 days and they became 10 times better so it's kind of like you going into the fires of a trial but the fire simply refines you the fire makes you better It. It does away with the dross, with the filth. And a vessel for the finer comes out. You you come out better than when you went in. But see, remember this thing in 1 Corinthians? Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble? If you put those first three in a fire, they're not going to burn up. The last three will. If you are a person of substance and character, you will go through fiery trials. You will have people come against you. But if you have the right character, you have the right... I hate to use the word, but worldview, that is you fear God above everything else, you're going to go through those trials and stand and, and not be blown about with every temptation, with every wind of doctrine. So Ecclesiastes 7, this is going to give us some insight. Verse number 18, how was it that Daniel and his friends came out so much better than all the others? It says here, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. What, caused that, what made them stand out from the crowd? It wasn't the way they dressed. It wasn't their gender identity. It wasn't you know, how many likes they had on whatever social media platform. They feared God. Now, I'll tell you why this is so powerful. If you have a good education... That will shine forth in some ways, right? You'll have your opportunity to show that you know something in that field. But a good education rarely helps you when it's dark and no one's watching. You see, when it's dark and no one's watching, the real you comes out. The real you. When you know no one's going to see what you're doing, no one's going to catch you, then the real you pops out. And a man who fears God realizes that God is always watching. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So there's always something, someone there to hold him or her accountable. So that's why the fear of God, If once that gets sunk into your heart and that becomes like the platform from which you make all the decisions for your life. God is the most important person, therefore I want to make sure he's happy and if some other people in the world are not so happy if they reject me as long as he accepts me that's all that matters that's why fearing God will push you to the head of the line you come forth of them all it'll make you stand out but in the right way not because of your opinion is different than his but different than the next guy or some you know, their classmate or workmate but fearing God you know in the New Testament when it talks to servants and masters it says servants You should be submissive, you should be subject and and, and work for your masters, not with eye service. Remember that verse? Not with eye service. But it talks about doing it in singleness of heart as unto the Lord. So when you go to work and your boss is not watching, do you still work just as hard? Because I'm working as unto the Lord, as if God was my boss. Think about that now. If God was your boss and he said, I want you to do this, this, these projects, off you go. How hard are you going to work? I mean, that would, that would up the ante, right? You'd say, okay, now I, I know this came down from God. I'm going to work really lecker hard. I'm going to get this job done right. But, see, God has told us in his word that your boss, he, that position is ordained of God. God has created this authority structure so that the people in charge have the authority to tell the people under them, do this and do that. So when, that, when the boss says, here's your projects, you start to work, okay, yes, it's a man that told you, but you see that as coming down from God. So you work extra hard. You work harder than the guy next to you because you're doing that unto the Lord. Dr. Ruckman used to tell us all the time, If you take two men, one saved and one lost, and everything else is equal, equal education, equal health, equal opportunity, the only thing different between these two men, one is saved, one is lost. The Christian should always do a better job. Always. Now, I know that's a hypothetical, but you understand the advantage that we have is that we have the Holy Spirit living within, and we have a motivation that that lost guy wouldn't have. Therefore, we should always have the advantage in any situation if, all, if everything else is equal. And I agree with that. Come to Proverbs chapter 4. Daniel and his buddies came out ten times better, <clears throat> had ten times the amount of character than those other men because they knew that head knowledge... Is not as valuable as heart knowledge. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong with head knowledge. But if it's all here and you're empty here, that head knowledge is going to be used for corrupt purposes. How many times have you met smart people that use it in the wrong way? I mean, I, I mean think about it. The, the people, these horrible dictators that we read about in history, the Stalins, the Hitlers, these men were demonic. Right? They, were, they were out of their minds in certain ways, but in other ways, they were brilliant. If you just look at certain aspects, when you listen to the speeches of Hitler and read his book, Mein Kampf, the man had some ideas. He wasn't a complete idiot. The problem was he was so morally corrupt. There was absolutely, I want to say nothing in his heart, but that's not true, just pure wickedness in his heart. So the heart trumps the head every time. Proverbs chapter 4, now with that being said, this passage should help us. Verse 23, Proverbs four twenty three. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Say, so what does that cover? Exactly what you read it as. The issues of life. Every issue. Your marriage, your job, your work, your education, every single, year, every part of it. There it is. Keep your heart. Keep it. Why keep it? Somebody's going to try to take it. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Put a boundary around it. Make sure sure you're you're being mindful of what's coming in, of what you're feeding yourself with. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Let's keep reading because this is a great passage. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Immediately we see a connection, the heart and the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, right? Jesus taught us it's not what comes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man, yes? For out of the heart of men proceed, and Jesus listed what? Fifteen things, I think? Fornications, adultery, lasciviousness, murders, evil thoughts. God, every, every bad thing you can imagine starts right here. Put away from thee a froward mouth. You know what a froward mouth is? The word froward, that's a great Bible word. That's a jerk. We would say he's a jerk. He's a froward man. He's a jerk. He's difficult. He's purposely difficult. Do you guys know anybody in your life that is purposely difficult? You don't have to answer out loud. You can just nod. Real. (laughs) Don't don't nod next to you. Just just nod. (laughs) Somebody that is purposely difficult. He says put that away. But before you can fix the the lips, keep your heart. It all starts with the heart. Verse 25, Let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Don't get distracted. Eyes on the prize. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Verse 26, Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Before you step, think. Before you step, think. Ponder the path of thy feet. Now, what good is it going to do you to think about it if all you have is head knowledge and nothing in your heart as it pertains to God. Your thinking is going to be skewed. Even though you think about it, you're going to come to a bad conclusion because you're thinking about it just with what's up here. Had a young man come to church last week and afterwards he approached me and he said, I believe in using the net profit approach to life. All my decisions, I use the net profit approach. So I weigh it out and if it does more good than bad, if I'm going to get more good out of it than bad, I think it's a good decision. Now, you see, he's making a decision just with what's up here. I said, just because a thing works out according to the way you want it to doesn't mean that it's good. That, now you've you, now you got to ask in your heart, right? You've got to dig down in your heart, into your conscience. You've got to talk to the Holy Spirit and go, Now, what do you think is good? That's the problem with such thinking. Well, net profit. Yes, but what are you trying to gain? You see the problem. You might gain what you want. That doesn't make it right. That was just raw pragmatism. I told him that. He hadn't heard that word, but that's what that is. Just if it works, it's good. Not always. Build the Tower of Babel. God came down. Yep, they're going to do it. One of the greatest engineering feats up until that time in the world. Right? That, that's a massive accomplishment. God said they can do it. Just because you can accomplish your goal doesn't mean the goal was good. See? So it's got to be something right in the heart first. Verse 27 Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. There we go. Now we're back to Daniel. Take a stand and don't leave it. Once you're on the right path, keep your heart. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to do everything they can to get you to turn. And Daniel, what an example he is. He just wouldn't turn. Even standing before the king, he was resolved. He was committed. Come back to Daniel now. Chapter 1, we'll finish up chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 21. It says here, and Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. So this means he went on for about 70 years like this. The story jumps 70 years here, approximately, maybe 68 to 70 years. So chapter 1 sets the scene for us. This, Daniel's life, is a story worth writing about. It is a life worth talking about. But where does such a life start? You don't want to look back in your life with regret, do you? You don't want to get to the age of, what is this? '85, '86, however, Daniel, however old Daniel is by the time of King Cyrus, you don't want to look back and go, "Well, just littered with mistakes. We're all going to make them, but you, you, don't, want, you don't want to be piling up regrets that you could have avoided easily. Daniel didn't. He made mistakes, but Daniel stood the court. He, 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 he finished the race. He started the race, took a stand, but then the Bible says he continued. He didn't, le- he didn't turn to the right hand or to the left. Some of you, you've started well. And praise God, that's worth mentioning. But God saw fit to tell us this story about Daniel to say, listen, you want to have a life worth writing about, worth including in Scripture? It starts with you taking a stand, but then you have to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's enough it's it's one thing to take a stand, but then you got to finish. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. Today we're going to have a baptism after the service. That is a great way. I'm going to preach on it a little bit this morning as well. Great way to take a stand. It's a stand that every believing person should take at some point in their life, you should be baptized. And the reason for that is to take that stand, to say, I'm not ashamed to be associated with the God who came and died for me. But, but baptism is a great place to start. Maybe you get baptized when you're 17, 18, 19, but then we want you to continue until you're 75. That's when the real work, that's when we see just how much character you do have because there are going to be trials and temptations, distractions to pull you away from what you know is right. Take your Bible, come to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and let's get verse number 7. Paul asks a very powerful question here. Galatians 5 and 7. Ye did run well. What a way to start that. Ye did. It's already in the past tense. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? What got in your way? Let me just let that sink in for a moment. Some of you, if you look back, you were running. Now, listen, it's not about speed, right? The race that we run is not about speed. It's about endurance, right? It's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? It's a long, you know that, you've heard that before. But, but nevertheless, running. You did run well. Some of you, if you just look back, you had some momentum, and you were focused on the race and you were running in such a way that one day you would receive a reward 1 Corinthians 9 Paul says if you're gonna run in a race run all so that you may obtain right so you can get an incorruptible crown so as we run this Christian race that's our attitude is I will give my level best each and every day it's not about speed it's about doing your best every day to fulfill the will of God is that fair no one's asking you to set any records to win some massive amount of souls or to start a great number of churches. Just do what God wants you to do today. That might be being a good parent or employee or studying hard. whatever. It can be smaller things as we think of them. In the mind of God, these things are all equal because it's something that He wants you to do. Does that make sense? What I'm doing this morning is of no greater value than you going to work tomorrow morning. In this way, I'm trying to obey God, and tomorrow morning when you go to work, you're going to be obeying God, right? So we come out of this going, well, we've obeyed God. Now, when you approach it with that attitude, I'm doing whatever I'm doing for the Lord. Many of you, if you look back, you had that approach, but then as time has gone on, something else has become your motivation. It's no longer the love of Christ that constrains you. It's something else, whatever it is. Might even be something that's not bad or sinful. But something else has grabbed your attention. And you're not running for the same reasons or in the same way. Perhaps you've started to cut some corners. And you're no longer obeying the truth. Now the question, right, it's a question, you did run well, what happened? Daniel started strong. And then slowly but surely, nice and steady, faithful, all the way to the end. What did Paul say when he got to the end of his life? I have finished my course right. I fought a good fight. Let me get the quote just right. 2 Timothy 4. You don't have to find it. I'm just finding it for myself. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Next verse. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness part of the race right, is finishing. Have you ever seen, I, I've, I've watched this on YouTube a couple of times, some Olympic runners they get far out ahead and they think they got it and then at the end they start celebrating and right, they're looking up at the crowd and they're waving and they're still going but they're not going for the same reasons anymore they're not going for that medal they think they already have it. Now they're going for the prestige and look at me see still running but not for the same reason then somebody else who's giving all <laughs> zoom, right at the last second takes it. That's heartbreaking. It's not enough to run 90% of the race. You want it 100%. Start well, run well, finish well. You still have Galatians, get chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Galatians 6 and 9. Paul says, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Guys, there's going to be plenty of times that you do get worn out, right? This this happens. And, And when you are weary, there's nothing wrong with catching your breath. There's nothing wrong with, gentlemen, you might remember at the men's meeting the other night, trimming your schedule, right? Sometimes, though, you've trimmed everything you can and there's still a lot on your plate. There's just some things you can't trim out of life. You just, a lot's going on at that particular moment. We just have to man up and, and do it, right? Quit ourselves like men. We just act like a man and get the job done. And sometimes you will have to admit, I am tired, but, but be tired in well-doing, Right? and keep doing it. Don't be tired of it. <laughs> I don't want to do right anymore. I still want to do right, but I feel weary. Okay, well then do something to catch your breath, to get your strength back, but don't quit. That's what Paul's saying. Don't quit. Let, let us not be weary and well-doing. We know one day there's a reward. There's, there's a day you stand before Christ, and it will be worth it. One last verse. Get John chapter 8, and we'll be done. John 8, verse 31. You don't have to dig too far into modern day society to see how this is true, but people don't take their commitments very seriously anymore. Specifically, if I can just harp on it for a moment, the commitment of marriage. When you stand at the altar and say, I do, it's a small phrase, massive importance. Your yay, Jesus taught us, should be yay. If you said, this is what I'm going to do, do it. Just do it. If you say I'm a Christian, that should be, that, that's a serious statement. Then, then do it. I do. For, in sickness and in health, in, for richer for poorer, right? In the good times and in the bad, I do. You realize we don't say I will, we say I do. That's an ongoing statement. Because <laughs> every day I'm still doing it, still doing it, still doing it. And there should have been a time in your life where you looked Jesus in those spiritual eyes and said, I do. I'm yours. And I want to stand by that. John 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now, when we read in Daniel, right, Daniel continued unto the first year of Cyrus. So that was a a regime change. Babylon falls and Pers- the Persian kingdom comes in. That's that's Cyrus, but it, it, he continued. Yes, he continued in that high position in the government. He continued to be alive, but he continued standing on his convictions. He continued serving God through all of that. Jesus tells these Jews that have just freshly believed, guys, great, you've believed. Now let me tell you what I expect. Continue in my words. I hope you guys see in this, there is a difference between believing on Christ and being a disciple of Christ. They're not the same. Now, in order to be a disciple, yes, you must believe on Him. That's where it starts. But that just makes you saved. That makes you a believer, you're saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. But to be a disciple That believer then must continue in the word. Then you are a disciple indeed, a real one. Not just the guy who said it, but doesn't do it. This is what Jesus wants from us. Continue in my word. For how long? Till you get to the end. Like Paul, I fought a good fight. Finished my course. I've kept the faith. All right, let's all stand if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you. It's uh, always good to have your book open and instructing us, and I pray that you let these things sink deep into our hearts. You've commanded us to keep our hearts with all diligence. Lord, uh, we're asking for your assistance on that. Remind us daily of how important this commitment is to you. Lord, help us to stand for you faithfully. Bless our fellowship now and the service to come. We need it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.